Uh, I want to ask you if you'd open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, and uh, we're going to keep going through our series here, Living in Exile. Uh, let me ask you a sort of a rhetorical question. How many of you have recurring dreams? Honestly, let's see some hands. A few, most of you, okay. M- most of you are on this side. This is more of the, the, the side struggling with issues, serious <laughs> mental issues. This, you guys are more or less healthy over here, but that's good. Um, about four weeks ago, the pastors and the ministry staff, we were in a staff meeting and we began to discuss, for some reason we got on this topic, we began to discuss uh, recurring dreams. So let me tell you about some of their crazy dreams. You know, what do you, I won't do that, but um, I'll tell you about one that I had for a while and it's been a lot of years now, but for, for a season I used, to, I used to have this recurring dream where I was driving in a yellow Jeep with the top off and I was going up this, um, driving up this steep cliff incline, kind of almost cartoonish in, in my mind's eye. And all of a sudden, as I'm driving up this thing and getting higher and higher, of course, a rabbit would emerge out of nowhere. And I, being a conscientious driver, would swerve to miss it, falling off of this cliff in my yellow Jeep, where I would be awoken just before impact. And I would have this dream again and again and again. So let's psychoanalyze me right now. If, you know. um, I actually have some theories about that, but the sermon or the service isn't long enough for those, so we won't get into that. But in, Jan- in Daniel chapter 2, we find King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, uh, those who had overthrown the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah, and we find that he is disturbed by what appears to be a recurring dream. Uh, every translation indicates that the, the dreams came in a plurality, that there was multiple dreams, and yet Daniel only interprets one. The king seems only concerned about one, so it seems to me that we are left to conclude that it is a recurring dream. The main point that I want to hear you, that, that I want you to hear this morning is in the subtitle of your handout, and it is this, that in the giving of the dream, the giving of the interpretation of the dream, as well as the content of the dream itself, its meaning, all three put on display the sovereign power of God. In other words, there is a God in heaven who is sovereign over all. And that is the bullet, that is the main point that we are to hear this morning. And we are meant to be comforted by this. I want to make just a a brief observation about Daniel chapter 2, and that's that's this, that... uh, the first chapter of Daniel actually is written in Hebrew, as you might expect, as the bulk of the Old Testament is. But interestingly enough, when we get to chapter 2, starting in verse 4, the language, the original language switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. And that's really fascinating because Aramaic was sort of the common spoken language of the people, uh, particularly the non-Jewish people. And I think that says something. In fact, most scholars conclude that in the Middle Eastern world at this time, the reason that that switches was so that it would have a broader hearing from the international community, not just the God-fearing people of God. In other words, this message was meant to be heard far and wide, what we get from this point on in the book. And so that, the fact that the language sort of expands to the most common language of the time, I think even bolsters the main point that we're focusing on this morning, and that is this, that there is a God in heaven who is sovereign over all. He is not just the God of those who declare that he is. He is sovereign over all. And that's what we're going to see again and again this morning. Look at Daniel 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. 
His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me, what my dream was, and interpret it, I will have to cut you into pieces and your houses turn into piles of rubble. So he's a nice guy, as we see. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, "Uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream... There is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they don't live among humans. That's actually an interesting point. Uh, This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. The first point that we're going to see this morning is this. That God's sovereignty is communicated through the dream or rather through the giving of the dream. I think it's quite a surprise, actually, in in the second chapter here. We might expect the dream to be given to a faithful, God-fearing man or woman. We might expect Daniel or one of his friends to be the one to whom a revelation is given. That would seem logical and consistent. What is odd to us here is that it's King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, one who does not fear God at all, who is the one who is given the revelation and given the dream. And I think there's an implication for us, and I stated it a moment ago, and that is this, that God is sovereign over all, not just those who fear him. He is not just God over those who elect him to be their God. His sovereignty extends over all the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every person. In fact, we're going to see there's this phrase that appears here in this text that that occurs multiple times, five by my count. Uh, He is referred to as the God of heaven. The God of heaven. And that is important. That is a means by which we are to see his supremacy over all. And it is repeated so that we do not miss it. The second thing we see here. God's, uh, God's sovereign over all people, nations, and powers. And this particular truth, of course, it really flies in the face, I think, of our very pluralistic society. Yeah? Our modern culture would say, oh, there's many gods. You know, just pick one that sort of fits your life. Or your God. Or all is God. Or there's many ways to God. And each of them are equally valid, even if they contradict one another. As though that were logical. But the Bible is countercultural to this. Its claim is that there is only one true and living God. We see this uh, throughout the Old Testament, especially this is affirmed to us. You think about the ten plagues uh, that uh, were delivered upon Egypt. 
And we, as we went through Exodus, we looked at this, but if you, if you weren't, there, weren't here for that particular series, one of the things we learned is that each one of those plagues, they weren't just randomly chosen, but specifically directed towards one of the false deities uh, of Egypt. It was God's way of systematically showing that he was supreme and sovereign over any and all God of human making. We saw it then, and we see it again here throughout Daniel. We see the rise and fall of at least five kings as one nation rises and another falls. And yet throughout the, uh, the systematic process of the up and down uh, uh, sovereigns and powers of the day, there is one king of heaven who reigns consistently throughout all of it. I've given you a couple of quotes on the back of your handout which speaks of this word sovereignty. It says a lot of things. There's a lot that I could talk about it. But at least one aspect that I, it says, it speaks of the freedom of God to do as he wishes. And Tozer speaks to this frequently, and I want to just read one of these to you. It says, he says this, God's sovereignty means that if there's anybody in this wide world of sinful men that should be restful and peaceful in an hour like this, it should be Christians. We should not be under the burden of apprehension and worry because we are the children of a God who is always free to do as he pleases. There is not one rope or chain or hindrance upon him because he is absolutely sovereign. And that is meant to be a comfort, both in Tozer's writing and as we see it here in the scripture. God is free to give a dream of revelation to a king who doesn't fear him. And by so doing, he shows that he is not just God to those who fear him. He is God of all. He is God most high. He is the one true and living God, not just one of many options. And as we're going to see later on, even King Nebuchadnezzar himself comes to this conclusion and declares it. And this isn't just an implication that I see, you know, kind of hidden away in this narrative. This is the explicit teaching of the scripture, especially as we move into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul declares for us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will happen. Everyone will come to that realization, which does not mean that everyone will be saved. It just means that everyone will ultimately come to that conclusion. Some will do it in time to be rescued by the grace and mercy of God poured out in Jesus. And others will recognize that truth too late. They will know it surely, but only on their way to judgment. The Old Testament tells us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The day to respond to the truth that there is one supreme God and one means of salvation, the day to come to that conclusion is today. If you're waiting for tomorrow, you're in a precarious way. And so we see God's sovereignty on display here and that he has delivered disobedient Judah to Babylon, to their hands. He did that in his sovereignty. We saw his sovereignty on display in that he gave Daniel favor in the eyes of the official when he requested not to defile himself with the royal food. Remember, it was God who inclined the servant's heart to Daniel's request. It was in God's sovereignty that Daniel and his three friends gained wisdom and understanding. It wasn't that you know, their IQ points were, were so high. It was that God gave them that. And here, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And so we might say in the early parts of really these first two chapters that we see the sovereignty of God on display 
and sort of the macro level, okay? He's at work in the international scene. He's bringing one nation down and elevating another. He gives favor to whom he chooses. He gives revelation to whom he chooses. God is clearly in control of the cosmic sweep of things. He is free to do as he desires. That's clear from the first two chapters. But as we go on here in chapter 2, we find some encouraging things, which is this. Even though he is in charge of the cosmic sweep of things, he is careful and compassionate even on the micro level. That is, on the personal level. He's controlling the cosmos, but he's concerned about our daily lives, our personal lives. And he's attentive even to our own prayers. That's our second point here. God is sovereignly concerned about our personal lives. He hears the prayers of Daniel and he comes to his aid. Look at verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to, be, to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. If you're an underliner, I would suggest underlining that in your Bible because there's a theme that occurs here and you might like to go back and see this. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into, the, went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. We keep seeing this phrase, the God of heaven. And he said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And so here we see, really, out of this calamity, I don't know a better word for it, but out of this calamity, the destruction, the deportation, now the threat to their very lives of these young men, we see this prayerful praise of Daniel come forth that really becomes the theological backbone of the whole book. And we see this wonderful uh, passage here, 18 and 19, where a title uh, that Daniel uses is introduced, the God of heaven. And again, this gets repeated time and time again throughout the text. And another thing that's interesting here is it's not just Daniel that uses it, but actually his contemporaries use this same phrase, the God of heaven. We see it used in Nehemiah. We see it used uh, used in Ezra. And I have those, um, uh, those verses there for you so you can search that out if you, if you like. But it seems to me that the people of God, especially the leadership, the spokesman for God, use this title as a common designation for Yahweh to remind themselves that he is the God of heaven, that he is the God over all gods. In contrast to the gods that the Babylonians worship, they worship the sun and the moon and the stars and these such things. And so when they are declaring that he is the God of heaven, they are declaring his supremacy over all of these things. They are reminding themselves that through deportation, through captivity 
even through this calamity and through all opposition, their God still reigns. And in their reference to him and to one another, uh, they, they kept that thought and that belief alive. This is meant to be wonderfully comforting for the Judeans and for us as well. Here we see the transcendence of God, that he is high and lifted up in charge of the cosmic sweep of things, but we see it right alongside his imminence. That is, he is close and near at hand. He is attentive to us. He knows us. And so Daniel and his companions, they plead to the Lord and he hears their prayer. Just reflect on that for a moment. God hears their prayer. We're so familiar and so accustomed to using that phrase that the mystery of it hardly hits us. God hears our prayers. All things that have been made were made by him. They were made for him. And yet he hears our prayers. He knows the cosmic sweep of all of history controlling it to its very end. And he's concerned about what concerns you. And so up to this point, we've really seen the sovereignty of God uh, really on display, interacting with nations, a few localized nations and some individuals. But now we get a glimpse from this dream of what God is doing in all of human history. And so the second main point here is this. God's sovereignty is communicated in a statue. Let's look at the content of the dream. Verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, and I have to read this in a snarky voice because that's how I imagine it. I might be wrong. There's no real key here for read in a snarky voice, but I suspect. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. I'll get back to that in a minute here. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were laying in bed, are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold its chest and arms of silver and its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. 
Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet of the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold into pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Long passage. I think there's a subtle but important contrast here between Arioch as the servant of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel as the servant of Yahweh. You notice Arioch's boast. I have found. He's a bit self-congratulatory as he's presenting Daniel here. And it seems that Arioch sees himself as a bit of a savior, maybe. Contrast that with Daniel's humility. When Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel, can you tell me my dream and interpret it? Daniel humbly replies, No, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And I think this subtle contrast is an important one uh, to to notice. Um, Daniel was in a position to take credit for the interpretation and in so doing, steal glory from the Lord, advance his own position, seemingly doing this by his own merit. But instead, he rightfully attributes the revelation and the interpretation to a supreme and sovereign God. In fact, I think we consistently see laced throughout the story of Daniel, the narrative of Daniel, uh, his steady diplomacy. If you remember, he, it was he that asked the servant if he could not defile himself with the royal food. He asked. He did it graciously. Uh, He spoke to Arioch here. We're told explicitly that he did it with what? With wisdom and with tact. And here we see him as he's speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He is quick to affirm, no man can do this, but there is a God in heaven. In other words, in his quiet and confident faith, he is able to routinely entrust himself to God rather than taking matters into his own hands. And by rejecting this temptation for personal glory, he preserves an occasion for God Most High to act in a way that honors himself. That God might be known. Not just the skill of man. The scripture affirms to us again and again that God honors such humble servants. In James 4, 6 it says, But he gives more grace. 
God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. In Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord declares, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The message of the dream itself is really massive in its scope. Uh, Through this image of a statue, the history of the world, really, through four successive Gentile empires is told. Uh, During the, the fourth and the final empire, all earthly dominions will be destroyed and the kingdom of God that will endure forever and ever will be established. This is an amazing dream that is given and it's given to a pagan king. Does that bother you a little bit? If I'm honest, I'm a little irritated about that. That's the broad message of the dream. But in the intervening days, it is encouraging. It's encouraging for the Judean exiles And it's encouraging for us as well. What it teaches us is this, that it is God who delegates power. Nations and empires are nothing more than characters in the drama that God is authoring. They are unwitting accomplices in what God is doing in his sovereignty in this world. Paul affirms it for us in Romans 13.1. There is no earthly power that God has not established. I don't always like that. But that is the reality that is taught. Consider the words of Jesus to Pilate. When Pilate says, hey, I have the power to free you if you want. Be nice to me, effectively. And Jesus says, you would have no power over me except that God gave it to you. It is God who delegates power. Rulers and sovereigns and kings and monarchs and presidents do not rise to power except that God permits it. This does not mean that God is pleased with every authority or that he is on their side or that they are on his side. It does mean, however, that whether they are righteous or wicked, they are part of God's unfolding plan. And that is comforting. All authority is a derived authority from God himself. There has never been a power, an authority of any kind that took power that God did not decree. And so Daniel recognizes this as he gives the interpretation. He even sees himself as a bit of a steward of this. And the interpretation of the dream itself also communicates the same truth, that it is God who delegates power. It was God who delegated the ability for Daniel to interpret this. He gave him the revelation. It's God who delegates power. We also see that kingdoms will rise and fall as God has decreed. This is the message to the Judeans and to us. Hear it loud and clear. Our hope is not in earthly kingdoms. Our hope is not in earthly kingdoms. The dream says it as loud as anything. Let me invert the history of it. America is not the savior of the world. Neither was Rome. Neither was Greece before it. Neither was Persia before it. Neither was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. The big picture message of the dream is that the kingdoms of human creation will not last forever. The day will come when the God of heaven will set up a kingdom forever and ever that will never be destroyed. And it will crush all of those other kingdoms and bring them to an end and itself will endure. That's the eternal kingdom that is revealed to us here. 
Now you might ask, hey, where is the revelation of this coming enduring kingdom in our text? How is it sort of portrayed to us? Well, in a really interesting way. And Pastor Paul, you would appreciate this, being a geologist originally. A rock. But this rock is hewn from heaven. And that is where we get a picture of something really special. That's our third point. God's sovereignty is communicated through a rock hewn from heaven. Uh, We're going to go back and look at verse 34, and then we'll skip forward at verse 44. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now skip down to verse 44. We're going to read more about this rock. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Again, it is amazing to me that the pagan king is given this vision, but let us remind ourselves what the vision is. The vision is God's plan for the ages until the final triumph of Christ himself. This particular dream and its interpretation prepares us to see the coming kingdom of God, which is brought in, ushered in, inaugurated by Jesus Christ himself. The takeaway for us here is this. It is a reminder that God accomplishes his purposes no matter who is in charge, no matter who is in captivity. For ours is the God of heaven. And I think we too often wish away evil and hard things. And we see those as seasons or times where perhaps God is not ruling. Perhaps God is not as in control. But God uses even wickedness and evil to secure his perfect plan. Just because there's darkness around us does not mean that the light of Christ has been extinguished. So the rule of this pagan king prepares us for Jesus and the kingdom of God. This rock hewn from heaven is none other than Jesus himself. This rock from heaven on on whom our hope rests. He is the one who ushers in this kingdom. It was foretold 600 years prior to his arrival to a pagan king. Christ's kingdom is been inaugurated by Jesus. It has been begun, but it's not fully here. It is both now and not yet, as we say in theological words. The kingdom is inaugurated by the person of Christ. Jesus not only, when he he arrived on the scene, he said, behold, what? The kingdom is at hand. He, He started something which would grow into an everlasting reign. And he has invited us to become citizens of this kingdom through faith in him, by repenting of sin and drawing near to him, he saves us. Paul says in Colossians 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. What's interesting about that verse is what, what Paul says there. He describes a dominion, a rule, but not a kingdom, not a true kingdom until Christ reigns. Paradoxically here in Daniel, it's actually the pagan king who understands the implication of the interpreted dream. And he declares it for us in verse 47. Verse 46 says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and he paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. You see, what we learn here is that Daniel is much more than just a children's story, isn't it? A little narrative that we once learned in Sunday school uh, to make sure that we didn't give in to peer pressure, as it's often presented. That's too small. Daniel prepares us for Christ, for his coming kingdom. He gives us the comfort that we find in its arrival and its enduring nature. I love what C.H. Spurgeon has, uh, has said, paraphrasing it a bit here. The Bible is not a book of virtue. It is a record of the redemption of God's people through Christ and every passage, a road that leads to the great metropolis, metropolis of Christ Jesus. This is not just a random story of, mor- of morals over here. This prepares us for Jesus. Daniel helps to prepare us for our coming Messiah. So let me draw this to a close and let's hear the the implications we're to take from this. God is not just just, or is not just sovereign over those who fear him. He is the God of heaven. It is God who establishes leaders and nations and it is he that tears them down. He is the God of heaven. Even though he is controlling the macro sweep of all things, he is faithful to hear the prayers of his people. We're reminded that our hope is not in earthly kings or rulers or their kingdoms, but our hope is in the God of heaven. He is establishing the one kingdom that will endure forever, and he does it through the person of of Jesus Christ. Uh, you're familiar with the game Rock, Paper, Scissors. Uh, maybe you played it as children. We're still childish in our house. It's the decision maker for lots of things. Who's going to get the gallon of milk this morning? Early. Let's go. Uh, we play this regularly. Uh, we all know how it works. Rock crushes scissors. Scissors cuts paper. Paper covers rock. But in this story, Christ, who is our rock, conquers all. And that is what we're meant to hear. Let's pray. Father, the world right now and always has looks out of control. But it's not. There is no power, there is no authority, there is no sovereign that you have not decreed. We're thankful for Jesus the rock hewn from heaven, inaugurated his kingdom 
invites us in to be its citizens. We're thankful for the hope that we are given here, that this kingdom will endure forever. It will never fade. It will never perish. Thank you for the salvation that we find in Jesus and for the right to be called the children of God. In his name we pray. Amen.